Uh, this is a reading from Luke 8, verse 40 uh, through 48. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Just then there was a man named Jairus, a leader of the synagogue. He fell at Jesus' feet and began pleading with him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. As he went, the crowds pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from a flow of blood for 12 years, and thought she had spent all, and though she had spent all she had on physicians, no one could cure her. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. Then Jesus asked, "Who touched me?" When they all denied it, Peter said, "Master, the crowds are hemming in on you and pressing against you." But Jesus said, "Someone touched me, for I noticed that power had gone out from me." When the woman realized that she could not remain hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Thanks, Jack. Well, Andrew keeps referencing this extra hour of sleep, and uh, I think all the parents are like, what? <laughs> because somebody did not get the memo about the extra hour, and maybe that was just my house, uh, but our kids were up terribly early this morning. Good morning. Hello. My name is Ian. It's good to see you. Thanks for being here today. I pray that today's a gift. I pray that even though your calendar, your clock is a little adjusted and you may be getting hungry for lunch, that you will uh, feel nourished in this space and that you grabbed a donut on the way here uh, to really accomplish that. Uh, Andrew, you can put up that photo. This is a picture from game four of the World Series in Philadelphia. Um, my condolences to the Philadelphia Philly fans amongst us. Um, I am not. I usually like to see our neighbors happy. Although when it comes to the Phillies, I'm quite happy to see you sad. So, sorry. But if you look closely in this picture, you see that the signs say a stand up for, and on each sign is a, a group of people or a, or a name of a person listed here who has uh, battled cancer. And uh, I was watching this with my, my father-in-law um, and my brother-in-law. And we were watching the, the TV. It was just like a deeply powerful moment, right in the middle of a very intense baseball game. And the whole stadium, every person holding a card. It was just so indicative of the, the way that, that cancer, as, as, as one you know, thing that we, we struggle with as people, our mortality, cancer, a specific vicious disease, has impacted every single person. And I'm watching this unfold, and my, you know, for those of you who know my family and I, my mother-in-law passed away uh, from cancer this summer, and just deeply, deeply moved by this moment. But, you know, like, you, this is, so this is cancer. We could, we could put up placards and signs for things like, systemic racism or um, things like, you know, struggling with relationships in the home. We could, you know, for many of you, you could hold up signs for people that have experienced church abuse. I mean, the, the least controversial thing I can stand in front of you and say is that the world is broken. The least controversial thing I can stand up here and say, because we've all experienced it. And if we could go around the room, we could talk about cancer. We could talk about these other areas of life where we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the world is broken. You know, many have, have theorized that the only doctrine of the Christian faith that is undeniably true is total depravity, that the world is broken. And so we sit 
in the face of this kind of brokenness. And we ask, what is God doing with it all? And this week we begin a mini-series on healing as we head towards the Advent season. And friends, I'm so hopeful for this series. I'm hopeful that God will physically heal in our midst. That there will be a testimony of God's kindness and goodness amongst us. That we would see God's power. Uh, Yes, I'm naive enough to believe that God still does the things that he was doing through Jesus. I'm hopeful that there will be spiritual and emotional healing. As we'll see today, healing is not just about the frames of our bodies. I'm hopeful there will be healing from shame that so many of us carry around. We believe the lie that God has nothing to do with us, that he doesn't want us. We believe the lie that we are forever isolated because of something we've done or something that's happened to us. And that is all deception is lies. But the reality is, for many of us, and I know some of you even here today, hope can feel like a lingering pain for those who long to experience profound healing but don't. The painstaking question often remains, okay, if Jesus can heal, why doesn't he? I mean, this is like the classic sort of modern atheist question. If God is good and kind, then, then why the world as it is? How can the world be as such? So as a way of setting up this series, I want to offer a theological category that we, we have to kind of embrace and grasp. I want to offer a promise and I want to offer a disclaimer. So first, a theological category. The already and the not yet. Can you say the already and the not yet? Now, we often start, and this is a good way to start a story. You start a story in the beginning. It's a good thing to do. Especially when we're telling the story of the Bible. We need to start in the beginning when God says it was good. But when we talk about healing, it's important for us to start the story from the end. From the vantage point of where all of this is going. Maybe you've had this experience, you bought a ticket on Broadway or a baseball game or something like that, and you realize upon sitting down that your seat probably was noted as obstructed view, right? And so you're sitting there, you're like, oh no, or you're sitting behind some, you know, very, very tall human being, and you're like, oh, I did not pick a good seat. And our circumstances can often do that, they obstruct our view. And I want to suggest today that in this concept of the already and not yet, as we sort of unpack this, that healing can only be viewed properly from the vantage point of eternity. For the follower of Jesus, for the follower of the way of Jesus, eternity, Jesus's resurrection is that which illuminates everything else. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection is not true, then we are the most pitied of all people because we believe a myth and a lie. But if it is true, that changes everything. I was listening to Bono read his autobiography this week. It's an incredibly moving book and he's got a nice Irish accent to go with it. But he says, he says, everything in our lives is defined by whether, by whether infiniteness or finiteness is the last word, whether death is the end of everything or the beginning of everything. C.S. Lewis says of eternity and the resurrection, he says, we believe that the sun is in the sky at midday in summer, not because we can clearly see the sun. In fact, we cannot. 
but because by it we can see everything else. And that is the resurrection of Jesus for us. It makes sense of everything else. According to David Hume and so many other modernist philosophers, any occurring of the supposedly miraculous was a subversion of the natural law. It was the natural order being broken, but that's not the way that the scriptures convey the miracles of Jesus. Jesus is not treating the natural law and order as his little plaything. You know, he's at a party, at a wedding, they run out of wine, and Jesus says, you know what I really want right now? Some wine. Hmm, who could get this for me? Well, I happen to be God. So, boom, water into wine. You're welcome. That's not how it works. Jesus is, the things that he does that we would consider miraculous in John's gospel are called signs. They are signposts to the way that the world truly is, to the way that the world truly functions. They are trying to invite us to see God's future, that the kingdom of heaven is breaking in in our present. I'm going to invite a couple of friends up to read some longer sections of scripture. Mary, I think you have Revelation 21. Last week, if you were here, we, we did this. This was a much longer exercise, and I thought it was so beautiful to hear people in our community read. And so... I thought, why not do that again? So some of the longer quotations of scripture I have, oh, that's part of the challenge. (laughs) Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The book of Revelation and the scriptures is often associated with the future. But if you read it well, it's not just about the future. It's a, it's a glimpse. It's a revealing. The word for revelation, apocalypsis in the Greek, means revealing. It's, it's, it's unveiling the way that things are. And as we read in Revelation 21, there is a victory accomplished by Jesus in his cross and his resurrection that guarantees that what our dear friend Imera just read, that there'll be no more death, no more pain, no more weeping, because God himself will be there in all of his fullness. The point that the narrative of the scriptures are trying to invite us into is that our healing, as scandalously as it may be proclaimed, is already accomplished. In the words of Jesus of Nazareth, as he gives his life for the entire world on the cross, it is finished. First Peter will say this, He says, he himself, being Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, Peter says, quoting Isaiah, you have been healed. Now notice the tense. It's not future oriented. It's saying this is something that is accomplished. This is something that is already, something that is true. When Jesus heals, when he brings grace that allows for forgiveness in our relationships, he pours out his spirit. This is not a detour from the normal course of the world. This is God revealing the very point and purpose for which he made the world. This is God's future, radically illuminating and empowering our present. Jesus, when he comes, 
to minister, when he comes to proclaim the gospel, he comes and says that the kingdom of heaven is near, that it's right here where I am. And the point that Jesus is saying is that wherever he is, the kingdom of God and all of God's future, all the force of God's glory is present in Jesus of Nazareth. When Jesus heals, it is not just a preview of the future. As if God is just letting the world unfold. And then he's like, wow, magic trick. I'll make it all fine now. The point is that Jesus, when he shows us who God is, it's like a down payment of the future. The fullness of healing that is coming for us is present in Jesus' very person. But we live in attention. We live with this Revelation 21 image that is sure and certain because Jesus is risen, but we also live in this not yet. I'm going to invite Katie up, who's going to read our other longer text from 2 Corinthians. Paul puts this powerfully, this tension between that which will be and that which we experience as our normal order of lives in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because while we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. If the story of God were simply about efficiency, simply about accomplishing something, then why we still inhabit what Paul calls these earthly tents, with all their weakness and their pain and their suffering would be truly puzzling. But in a great mystery, as Paul outlines, there is a purpose to our lives, lived in all of their precarious and fragile states. There's something that God is wanting to do here, even in our suffering. That we can somehow find God at the depths, that we will not be found naked and unclothed, that his promise is sure and certain that we live by faith and not by sight, that the assurance of God's very presence with us is Jesus giving his life for us. This is a profound mystery, but we live in this tension between that which is already and that which is not yet. Okay, that is the promise, that healing is your destiny, that it is just as sure and certain as what Jesus has done on the cross. And now a disclaimer. As I alluded to earlier, even talking about the hope of healing can feel painful or triggering for many of you. For some of you, you grew up in a faith environment that suggested whether implicitly or explicitly, if you just had enough faith or if somebody else just had enough faith that they would be healed. And the idea was that conjuring up the right words to say to God or or gathering up the right prayers or just, you know, if you could just build up enough faith that God would be moved. But that makes healing all about us doesn't have any nod to Jesus's compassion. God is a healer. That's who he is. It's grace that he pours out and showers upon us. For others of you, probably for most of us, we have 
prayed for a healing that didn't come. A loved one still passed away. A marriage still fell apart. A friendship could not be restored. We struggle daily with the whims of our own anxiety and depression, saying, God, take it away today. And we live in this tension. And friends, for all of us here today, I don't have some sort of magical answer, some sort of theological thing that you've never considered. This is the oldest question about what God is doing in the world. All I have for you is the cross of Jesus. Jesus, in the mystery of God's love, overcomes all death and brokenness through suffering. And part of finding that we really can walk by faith and not by sight is by somehow finding that at the depths of our suffering, at the depths of our groaning in these earthly tents, as Paul says, as the, at the depths of, as Romans 8 says, that all of creation is groaning for restoration, is that Jesus has gone down to those depths and he will meet us there. Paul says in Philippians chapter three, he says, I wanna know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. We truly embrace the already and the not yet tension when we train our hearts, our minds, and our souls to see how God is with us in the present. And we relentlessly through prayer, it's okay to pray to God and say, God, make it different than it is now. Because God is our father who loves us. God is not saying, hey, you need to pray according to my will and you need to pray according to how you grasp my will. God says, like Jesus says, prayer is like a person who understands that persistence and just bothering God and keep coming before him and saying, God, you need to do something. You need to meet me in this. That is okay. And friends, the best example I can give is with my own children. Like I'm never annoyed by their asking for stuff. I'm, I'm finite, so sometimes when they ask for a snack for like the 40th time, I get a little annoyed, but this is not who God is. God wants us to be people who wrestle with him. God wants us to be people who bring our needs before him. And this is everything, how we embody this already and not yet tension. We know where the story is going, not because we have foresight into the future, but because we know who Jesus is. And so we say, Lord, would your kingdom come? Would your will be done right here on earth as it is in heaven? As we go through this teaching series, this series is an exercise for me of pastoral faith. I, I, I know because Jesus is compassionate that God is wanting to mend broken hearts, minds, and bodies, but I can't do anything more than you can to make that happen. So I have to trust that the Holy Spirit will be confirming in our hearts, even when the healing lingers or when it doesn't seem to come, what Sarah Clarkson, who struggles with a, a certain kind of OCD that causes her to have really kind of dark and compulsive, repetitive thoughts. She writes in this incredible book, which I recommend to any of you who, you know, maybe that's your own personal struggle. You know somebody who struggles with something like OCD, mental health. She writes this book called This Beautiful Truth, and it's an incredible book. She writes... For God works a, and weaves a beauty that we cannot imagine. He comes to heal, and it may look different than we imagine, but his goodness is always on the way. Good is always being crafted for us, and we are being led step by step into its light. And friends, I know that for so many of you, the tension between the already and not yet is not a theological construct. 
It is the visceral lived reality of your life right now. It is the weight and the burden that you woke up with. It is that feeling that you are the walking dead this morning. And I just pray, and I'm going to pray in just a moment as we turn to our text for today, that Jesus will meet you. And I have to express that faith that he's here amongst us because he promised he would be. Let's pray as we turn to Luke 8. Lord, come, come Holy Spirit, Jesus. God, would your spirit of comfort that comforts us in all of our afflictions, would you meet us here today? God, as we open these words, Lord, we see your compassion, your kindness, God. And Lord, where we don't, where there's nothing to understand, God, where there's just pain and sorrow and loss, would we find that you are there? God, you've gone to the depths in giving of yourself to us. We find you at the depths, the darkest night, the valley of the shadow of death. We pray expectantly over, these, over this time that you would speak to us, that you would meet us. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen. In Luke 8, the text that Jack has read for us, Jesus has an encounter with a woman that will frame the multivalent ways that God wants to work healing in our lives. You see, when we, we think about healing, our initial response is that's physical. That's, you know, our frames of our bodies operating the way that they should. But Jesus, when he enacts healing, is always pointing to a wider reality, that the body is a part of a larger ecosystem, that it's trying to point us to what God is doing in holistically healing us. Luke is a master artist. And this is the thing I always want to bring us back to, is these gospel writers, the writers of the scriptures were not just, you know, divinely inspired robots that are just like, yes, Lord, next, next sentence. Okay, period there. These are artists. The way that they tell the story is important. The things that they're trying to get us to notice, the little subtle hints that they're trying to get us to pay attention to all have incredible merit. And Luke is no less a master artist. Luke 8, he writes, beginning in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Pay attention to how old this young girl is. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for how many years? Twelve. But no one could cure her. First, we have Jairus, whose daughter is sick. He loves his dear daughter. And so he, in in short of any other solution, has gone to Jesus. Now you have to understand, Jairus is a leader of the synagogue. And so often the the leaders of the religious establishment in Jesus' day were either at odds with Jesus or they were outright hostile to him. There was constant confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. But Jairus is left with no other recourse. Jairus is saying, I need to help my daughter get well. And if there is anybody walking this earth that can do it, it's this man, this man who's been famous for working wonders. And so Jairus goes and he falls down before Jesus. He is a man of status in the community and his name is given. But Luke expertly, masterfully is telling a great story. There's another woman there. A woman with no status, a woman who just like Jairus' daughter is is associated with the number 12. She's been bleeding for 12 years. The text tells us that no one could cure her. 
Now, it's always important for us to remember, just as we remember that the gospel writers were artists reflecting on this divine revelation of what Jesus had done, Jesus was not an acultural divine robot, like wandering about the streets, uttering divine sayings that nobody could understand. Jesus told stories that were funny. Jesus told stories that would, would sort of sneak in the side door and the people were like, oh, I think he's talking to us. Jesus of Nazareth was a first century man. Yes, the fullness of God in human flesh. He was steeped in the practices and the stories of first century Jewish culture. And one of the things that was very important in this culture was ritual purity. The Jewish people distinguished themselves from their Gentile neighbors because they had a story that told them they were called to be different in the world. They were different than the pagans around them. And blood was a major factor in ritual purity. Now, this gets super in the weeds. Leviticus sometimes does this, if you've read it. Like, why do they have a law and a rule about that? I don't always know. And we are approaching one of those subjects today. But according to the ritual laws that the people that Jesus walked among lived by in Leviticus 15, look at what it says. Beginning of verse 25, it says, If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her menstrual impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness, as in the days of her impurity she shall be unclean. How many days was this woman going to continue in ritual impurity according to Leviticus 15? Was it some of them? Was it sometimes? It says all of them. How long has this woman been bleeding according to Luke? 12 years. 12 years she has been ritually unclean. Now again, ritually unclean is a part of a wider orbit and a wider web of cultural norms. Uncleanness meant isolation. If this woman were to touch anyone else, according to this framework, they too would be unclean. If this woman were to sit upon a couch, that couch would become unclean and would infect anybody who sat on it. Again, I don't know why these are in there. But the reality is we're taking it, we're inhabiting its world. And this culture also, a person who was suffering, it would also be implied that the reason that they were suffering is because they had done something wrong. Have you ever read the book of Job? Job, it is very clear from the way the narrator sets up the story of Job that Job has done nothing wrong. That is the point of the story. But when his friends come along, they see the disaster that has been wrought upon Job. All they can suggest is, hey, Job, don't you think you did something wrong? And he persists. He maintains his innocence. He says, before heaven and earth, I have not done anything wrong. But there's this kind of karmic cycle that's instituted in this kind of theology that those who do well get blessed by God and that those who do poorly are cursed by God. And you could see for this woman who's been suffering for 12 years, the implied theological truth that not only is she suffering, not only is she suffering by bleeding, but also that God is upset with her. This woman is isolated spiritually. She's isolated socially you can begin to glimpse the sort of emotional and social and spiritual damage that this woman lives with in, a, in addition to her chronic physical malady. I mean, are any of you sufferers of man flu? Like, I get like sniffles and start thinking like, okay, let's get on WebMD. This is probably the end. 
And my wife is sitting there like, you're such a wuss. This woman has been suffering for 12 years. And Luke paints this wide orbit of this woman's suffering. It's not just physical, it's social. It's not just physical and social, it's spiritual, it's emotional. We can start to glimpse this all-encompassing way that this woman is living her life. But just like Jairus, this woman has a plan. A plan born of absolute desperation. You see, verse 42 tells us that the crowds are such that they are pressing in upon Jesus. You can envision this scene. Jesus is walking the dusty roads of first century Galilee and there are people around him everywhere. They've all heard of this wonder working teacher and they want to get close to see what Jesus is doing and what he might do. And so even though for this woman to be a a part of the larger fabric of society, one of her responsibilities as somebody who was unclean was to stay away from people, was to keep them at distance so she would not infect them with her uncleanness under the cover of a crowd. Guess what? Social norms get thrown out the window. You know, there's a lot of sociologists that have done studies on mobs and like how they sort of act and what their, their logic is. And basically the common conclusion is that in a mob, people just throw all social conventions out because you have the, the guise of anonymity. You can be somebody who maybe you're not fully there. So this woman sees the crowd, she sees an opportunity, and so she starts to make her way, inching through the crowd, pressing through, probably got a cloak over her head, just kind of making her way towards Jesus. She's touched a lot of people. They don't know they're unclean now, but that's not the focus right now. Luke 8, 44 goes on. She came up behind him. Notice that she comes up behind him, which is important, and touched the fringe of his cloak, And immediately her her flow of blood stopped. Then Jesus asked, who touched me? When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds are hemming you in and pressing against you. But Jesus said, no, someone touched me, for I noticed that power has gone out from me. Okay, so Jesus is making his way through this massive crowd of people when all of a sudden he, in his sort of divine attunement to what God is doing in the world, feels that power has gone out from him. And he turns to Peter and he says, who touched me? And Peter, like, is ever the master of the obvious. He's like, Jesus, there's like 2,000 people here. A lot of people have touched you. Like, there's no, you know, no, no COVID distancing going on in this scene. Like, everybody is all up in Jesus's face. They're all touching him. Not a lot of hand sanitizer. Jesus, Peter's like, a lot of people touch you, Jesus. But Jesus is like, no, a specific thing has happened. He won't move on. It says in verse 47, when the woman realized that she could not remain hidden, She came trembling and falling down, but where does she fall down? Notice she was behind him. Where is she now? She's before him. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. It's in this moment that the record seems to stop. As Jesus stops his motion through the crowd, you know, you see like a crowd slowly die down, like everybody focus in one place. Everybody's now looking at Jesus as he's deliberating, who touched me? And then as this woman comes up, she realizes that she cannot remain hidden. So she comes before Jesus. Now all of the attention is focused upon Jesus and this woman. Have you ever been in a scenario where you just didn't want anybody to notice you? Dear God, can I just remain in the crowd? Maybe you're here and you're new today and you just wanted to come sit down and leave when it's over. Bless you. 
But now this woman, all the attention is focused on her. Now, why would Jesus do this? Isn't this mean? Like, couldn't this be kind of a transaction? This woman receives her healing. She touches the fringe of Jesus's cloak and she goes away healed. Amazing. Jesus carries on, goes to heal Jairus' daughter, who it turns out there's some very urgent circumstances that are happening and everybody wins. But Jesus stops, he lingers. He won't move on until all of this is brought into the light. Why does he do that? Well, remember what this woman was suffering from. She was suffering from an issue of blood, but that wasn't the end of it. It wasn't just a physical malady. It was a malady that caused her to be ostracized socially. It was a malady that caused her to spend all that she had looking for doctors that could cure her. It was a malady that caused her to assume that God was uh, not impressed with her, that God was mad at her. And so in this moment, Jesus is meeting her in all of the many layers of her ailment. He's meeting her in all the depths of her sickness. Notice what happens. She says, when I touched, she falls down before him. And when I touched you, I was healed. And notice who she declares that in front of. It says that all the people were there. Jesus, in all of his genius, in all of his compassionate care for each and every person, sees what's going on with this woman. And she testifies to the fact that God has healed her in front of all of the people who would have recently ostracized and isolated her because of her ritual uncleanness. Now they see the village, her family, they all see that she has been made clean. So Jesus' healing is not just working healing in our physical body. It is inviting us back into community. It is healing our shame. And then Jesus, as he's staring at this woman, this woman who would have been convinced that she was somehow cursed by God. This woman who had nobody to fight for her. Remember where this story started? It started with Jairus, who so loved his daughter that he was willing to break every social convention to go and fall in front of Jesus. But this woman, this unnamed woman, had no father to fight for her. And yet, as she's standing, as she's fallen before Jesus, as she's received her healing, as she's being restored to the community, she's fallen before Jesus. She looks up at him. She looks into the very face of God. Notice what he says to her. He says, daughter. You see, this woman didn't know that she had someone there who was there to fight for her. This woman didn't know that she had a father who loves her and is compassionate for her. But Jesus in that moment, with all the fury of heaven, with all the love of heaven, looks her in the eyes and says, daughter, daughter. You are not forgotten. You are not ashamed. You are not isolated. There is healing for you. The yes is for your physical body, but it's also about everything else. This is who God is. And friends, he says that to each one of us today. He's longing for us to see our, our reflection in his eyes and to see us and hear our names called for who we truly are. You are daughter. You are son of God. And notice what he says to her as he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. The phrase translated made you well is from a single Greek word, sozo in the Greek. And sozo is often translated salvation. And there's an interplay throughout the scriptures of God's salvation 
and God's healing. And they kind of interweave with one another. Because Jesus' salvation is not just saving us from something. Jesus isn't just saving us from judgment. He's saving us to something and to someone. Jesus is, is saving and healing us for restoration and fullness of joy. And Jesus tells her, go in peace. Theologian John Swinton writes, the Bible has no equivalent word to health as we might understand it within a contemporary biomedical context. The closer word is shalom. Shalom is not the absence of illness, disease, or disability. It has to do with the presence of God. Healing has first and foremost to do with connecting and reconnecting people to God. And this is the stunning paradox, the already and the not yet that we live in light of in this moment right here. As Tolkien says, the hands of a king are the hands of a healer. Jesus' hands is healing because he is not denied the painful depths that we often descend to. He's not denied the painful realities of our world. He's not denied the many ways that we find ourselves sick, that we, we long for restoration. Jesus has taken all of those upon himself, has inscribed them on his very hands. He has nailed them to a cross and he's overcome them. This is who Jesus is. He is our healer. As Isaiah says, by his wounds, we are healed. And even the most painful parts of our story, even the parts where it seems like the healing didn't come in the hands of the nail-scarred Jesus can be a gateway to healing. And this healing is certain. It is our future. It is our destiny. It is where all of this is going. And we can walk in that not yet in the already, not by faith, but by, not by sight, but by faith. And friends, today, as we come to this tension, as we come again to this uh, sort of like expression of faith that Jesus will meet us here, where we are longing and aching for healing, we come to a table. On the night Jesus was arrested, he took bread and he broke it. His healing hands. And he said, this is my body broken for you. He took a cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood poured out for our sins. And friends, as we come to the table today, I just simply want to offer you, as we looked at the, the, the myriad ways that Jesus, in all of his mercy, meets us in all the ways that we can be broken. And he's trying to pull them back together, to integrate them back into wholeness and shalom, to help us to see the glorious not yet in light of our very often, very painful already. To see that Jesus is here. And I, I don't want to short circuit God, friends. I don't want to be like, okay, God, you know, if, if he wants to heal, he will. I, I just want to ask expectantly, almost without apology, because there is this not yet. And we live in light of that. But I also, I, friends, I want you to see that even if you're not aching for physical healing here in this place, that God is meeting you with all the fullness of his health, with all the fullness of shalom, that to put away shame, 
to be restored to community, to allow God to tell you who you are, as opposed to trying to forge an identity for yourself, that this is what God is doing and working healing for us. That his healing is always holistic. It is always making us whole and giving us a glimpse of what will be. And so today, if you need healing, as we're coming to this table, I pray that you would just allow that to be a reality. Just say, God, would you, would you give me uh, just a, an expression of faith here today? And again, disclaimers. I don't have any guarantees that there's any right words, but maybe, maybe God wants to do that in our midst. I also want to say to you, to those of you who have just like been walking in shame or been walking your own way, and you're saying that there's a better way, would you just allow God to tell you who you are today, to meet you? We're going to come to this table in a moment, and I just invite you to kind of hold those things in your heart. Maybe you're praying for another person for healing. Maybe you're praying for another person for physical or emotional healing. Recovery from a trauma that often takes so many different forms and shapes. Would you just hold them here as we come to this table? And then after we come to this table, we'll have just a time of response. We'll respond in worship. There'll be some people uh, here to pray for you. If you'd like to pray for something specific, I, I encourage you to just be bold and just say, Lord, help me to verbalize what I'm asking for. We live in the tension of the already and not yet, friends. And I wish there was some way I could just say, hey, if you, if you do this, everything will be okay. But that's not how it goes. But in that already and not yet, Jesus has secured that everything, everything will be made new. That it's all moving towards resurrection, towards restoration. That is our certain and true promise. So we live in light of that. We walk not by sight, but by faith. Let's pray. Jesus, would you?